0: everybody and welcome back to the illiteracy podcast i'm your host tim benson a senior policy analyst at the Heartland institute a national free market think tank uh this is episode 129 of the podcast oh my god 129 and the first uh first podcast of 2024 ringing in the new year here but uh so not a new not a new podcast anymore as you've noticed by 129 episodes but if you're just tuning in for the first time basically what we do here on the podcast is uh I invite an author on to discuss a book of theirs that's been uh, newly published or recently published on an issue or a person or thing we think you guys would find interesting. And then uh, hopefully at the end of the podcast or even in the middle of the podcast, if you get your druthers about you, you go ahead and uh, purchase the book yourself and give it a read. So if you like this podcast, please consider giving Illiteracy a five star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show and also by sharing with your friends as that's the uh, best way to support programming like this. And my guest today is Dr. David Bido, and Dr. Bido is a senior fellow at the Independent Institute and our good friends at the Independent Institute and a uh, professor emeritus at the University of Alabama. Uh, you might have seen his work in the Wall Street Journal, Reason, National Review, the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Times and the Washington Examiner, as well as in scholarly journals like the Journal of Southern History and the Journal of Urban History, among many others. Uh, He is also the author of From Mutual Aid to the Welfare State, Fraternal Societies and Social Services, 1890 to 1967. And that's a book that uh, belongs on the shelf of uh, any uh, serious uh, student, uh, conservative student of history. And he's also the author of Taxpayers in Revolt, Tax Resistance During the Great Depression, and TRM Howard, Doctor, Entrepreneur, Civil Rights Pioneer. And lastly, he is also the author of The New Deal's War on the Bill of Rights, The Untold Story of FDR's Concentration Camps, Censorship, and Mass Surveillance, which was published back in October by the Independent Institute, and is the book we will be discussing today. So, uh, Dr. Bido, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate thank, it. Thank you so much for asking me. Oh, no problem. So, I guess first question, uh, what made you want to write this book in you know what was what was the genesis of
1: it? Well, I nibbled around the edges. I'd done a lot of research on the 1930s and other contexts, and i read a lot about FDR. I've always been his, interested in the history of the presidency, and I, I I I kept running across all of these topics on FDR's dark side, I guess you could say, his civil liberties record that were not being discussed or that would be just sort of asides. Um, certainly, people are well aware of the Japanese internment. Although there's more to that story, I think, than people are aware of. But I, I, I kept seeing all these things, and my, as I read about FDR as president, I kept coming across evidence that he was he was really a fairly jaded, fairly cynical fellow, and uh, if he had political enemies. Uh, he was willing to use kind of any means to discredit them. But at the same time, FDR was a very charming man. And uh, 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 that comes through in his radio broadcasts. It came through in a lot of his personal meetings. But there was this other side to him, more of a cynical, sadistic side, but also one that was very ruthless in dealing with political dissent. And I said, look, you know, let's look more into this. And I found there's a rich story there of of uh, of, uh, all, of all sorts of things involving the Bill of Rights, violations of the Bill of Rights during both the New Deal period and World War II period. All right. So
0: you could say I'm sure that uh, his uh, ruthlessness was part of the reason he was so monumentally successful as a politician. Uh you know, I mean, it's not a great thing, but it's also you know something which led to his, uh, I, at least in electoral terms, the most successful politician in American history.
1: Said, I think that that's often true, but it's not always true. A very good example of this was there there was these uh, two uh, newspaper publishers, uh, the Pattersons. Mm. One of them was sissy Patterson who ran the Washington Times-Herald. And then their brother, uh, uh, Joseph, who ran the New York uh, Daily News. And they were... Two of the biggest publishers in the country, they'd been important FDR ally, allies during the 1930s, and they were cousins Backing with
0: McCormick. And uh, yeah, they were Congress.
1: cousins of McCormick, mm-hmm. um, uh, but McCormick was much more conservative, had some libertarian tendencies. They were New Deal people, but they broke with the president over foreign policy in 1941 over lend and they became very strong opponents because they were principled, you know, non-interventionists. Um, And once Pearl Harbor happened, they both went to FDR sort of hat in hand and said, we'll do whatever you want. Please let us know. And FDR just blew them off and was like, you guys, you know, you need to look at your record. You had this terrible record and tell sissy to behave. You know, this is a woman that had been a friend of Eleanor Roosevelt that had come to the White House that had supported the president. And someone said, look, he could have had these two very powerful newspaper publishers on his side if he just extended an olive branch. So I think you could make an argument that sometimes this desire for revenge gets to him. It's like a little like Trump in that sense, mm-hmm. I guess you could say, that maybe it's better just to pull back a little bit here yeah. <laughs> at times. Yeah.
0: All right. So before we get to his presidency, uh, why don't you talk a little bit about uh, Roosevelt's intellectual roots and the intellectual roots of the new deal uh, you know these or at least his which generally spring from uh, Wilson and the new freedom and his cousin Teddy Roosevelt's the new nationalism.
1: Yeah I think you summed it up pretty well there he, he he's born in the 1880s in uh, to privilege and he Uh, This is a time when progressive ideas, intellectual ideas, are really starting to percolate in universities, in the church, social gospel movement, Americans going to Germany to study. And those ideas are starting to percolate. So as he grew to adulthood, those ideas are starting to really become quite prominent. And he's a Democrat, but, you know, that branch of the family were Democrats, but that didn't really mean anything. Because when Teddy Roosevelt becomes president, who is a distant cousin of Theodore, uh, or I mean of Franklin, uh, Franklin is a very strong supporter of Teddy. In fact, he becomes kind of the head of the young Republicans at Harvard for a while. And so he looks up to his cousin, Teddy, who we called Uncle Ted, even though he was a very distant cousin. Became an uncle in one sense because Eleanor Roosevelt was, in fact, Teddy Roosevelt's niece. Teddy gave away Eleanor at the wedding. Um, So he looked to him, and then he also looked to Woodrow Wilson. He was an early Wilson supporter, and he ended up becoming Secretary of Navy in the Wilson administration. Now, one idea that he gets from progressivism, and there's a civil libertarian strain in some progressivism. He did not pick up on that. But he picked up on the idea of, look, you got an important goal for the good of the nation, and the means to achieve that goal are less important than the goal itself. Meaning, don't worry about things like uh, uh, constitutional niceties right. and, and 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 that kind of thing. Just get that goal because you've got this. You got to search out for social justice.
0: Yeah, you have a great quote in the book uh, from Robert Jackson, who was. One of FDR's uh, attorneys general, and the quote was, uh, "Because he, meaning FDR, uh, thought that his motives were always good for the things he wanted to do, he found difficulty in thinking there could be legal limitations on them. He was not a legalistic-minded
1: person." Yeah, so,
0: so like you said, it, the, that's
1: exactly true. And his other attorney general. Um, I, I guess his successor to Jackson was was uh, Francis Biddle. And Biddle says much the same thing about him. Um, and Biddle was very reluctant to go along with some of FDR's uh, plans, such as his push for Japanese internment. But it's interesting that he dedicated his book to Roosevelt. So a lot of people are willing to overlook that aspect of, of President Roosevelt.
0: hmm all right. So before we get to his presidency, uh, why don't you talk a little bit about the what's, uh, I guess, called the Newport sex scandal. And uh, what does this episode uh, sort of show us about FDR's approach to problems or, or sort of presage what he's going to do uh, once he becomes president?
1: Yeah, this is not well known. Um, it's starting to get more attention. But when FDR was assistant secretary of Navy, He was appointed by the Secretary of Navy in the Wilson administration to head a so-called sex squad, Newport sex squad. And they were going to investigate allegations of homosexuality in the Navy, you know, specifically centered there on the port at Newport. And uh, so, you know, uh, he did this investigation. He had, oh, I don't know, a couple dozen investigators and they would use methods of entrapment, of uh, uh, intimidation. Uh, people were arrested and held without charges for long periods of time. And it was over the top. Now, the goal was to uh, find, uh, ferret out homosexuality in the Navy. And of course, you know that was a different time and that was the priority. Having said that, Even though I think many people would have agreed with that priority, it was so over the top in terms of the methods that there was a congressional investigation of the Newport sex squad and Teddy and Franklin was condemned. He was people gave up on his political career. They said uh, um, he's the man responsible. He's the one that ran the whole show under this me idea. We got a goal. Veritying out homosexuality for the good of the Navy, and we're going to use any method. But he was condemned. And a lot of people thought his career was over with. And interestingly enough, only about three weeks after the Senate issued a very harsh report condemning Roosevelt, he had his bout with polio beginning. So, um, And he's able to eventually rebuild his career after that. So it may there may have been, it's an interesting question as to whether that actually helped his career in the end, because he he was very, you know, very uh, committed. And it was a very mm. inspiring story of uh, his overcoming this paralysis. But that really all began just, you know, a couple weeks after a lot of people had written him off politically.
0: Mm. Okay. So let's move now to his presidency itself uh, at least pre-world war ii here um the the black committee the where the the black inquisition committee that uh, <laughs> chair ominous name <laughs> yeah, yeah uh chaired by uh, senator hugo black who would later go on to uh, become a justice or was a would be appointed by roosevelt to the supreme court um yeah so talk a little bit about that who was hugo black uh what was the stated purpose of the black committee and what, what did it actually do?
1: Well, uh, Hugo black was a Senator from Alabama where I'm from. Um, And he was a very, I guess you'd say kind of a populist. He was a big new dealer. He, if you listen to his speeches and there aren't many of them surviving from that period, they're like, Whoa, this is like Huey Long or something. It's really over the top rhetoric, uh, you know, very sort of energetic, but anyway, he was loyal to Roosevelt and they all knew it and he was effective. He was called the president's chief ferret by some. And so they, by 1934, 35, 35, there was more and more opposition to the New Deal because the economy wasn't doing as well as a lot of people hoped. Poll F- FDR was falling in the polls. They were very worried. There was more and more opposition, and so as a result of that, Roosevelt got his uh, advisors together, and they basically agreed: we got to discredit this opposition. We got to investigate it. We got to discredit it. We got to find where its money's coming from. We got to pull them in. And investigate them, and so they decided that Plaque was their guy, um, and he was made head of a committee to investigate lobbying. And how did they define lobby? Lobbying would be basically what we're doing, right? Any attempt to influence the uh, ideological environment in terms of policy, even and not in terms of policy directly would be considered lobbying so it was about as broad a definition you can get so they started to do this now at first they got a lot of pushback because a lot of people said well who do you think you are you know called them in people would fight back but then black had a really smart idea i don't know if it was his idea but he, he came up with it someone suggested it or whatever he said look what if i can get the private communications of these witnesses before they testify. What was the most private form of communication during this period? Um, I mean, in terms of, I guess you could say, people writing letters about policy and things. It was telegrams, probably. And that was the email of its time. It really was. It was instantaneous or close to it. It was almost
0: like the texting of its time.
1: Right. It, it really was. And, yeah. you, and you had a lot of companies that would add teleg- telegraphers there on site. And um, it, you people would let down their hair and they would say things they wouldn't say normally like email. Right. And it was over, like I said, over 50 percent of long distance communication. So it was tremendously important. Um, and it operated a lot like email. Well, anyway, there was a law that require the telegraph companies, the big one was Western Union, but there were others, but that was the big one, to keep copies of all telegrams for a certain period of time. And sometimes these were subpoenaed in particular cases on an individual basis. But Black wanted, he wanted tons of them. So he went to the telegraph companies and he said, uh, for example, is what he wanted. He Went to the Western Union and said, I want all incoming and outgoing communication telegraphs uh, telegrams from Washington to to and from every member of Congress. And then he had a list of other people. And what did Western Union say? We're not doing that. You know, we'll be discredited with our customers. So he found out about this rule, went to the FCC, and the FDR went to the FCC and told them, you cooperate with black. And they went along with it. Um, And so for a nine-month period, he got telegrams, uh, you know, millions of them, literally. And he went through something like 10,000 a day. And he told his uh, staffers, FCC and committee staffers, uh, well, if you see private things, you know, look past them, but look for things about lobbying, right? And so they take notes, they copy them and that kind of thing. And they literally went to something like three million because they just every day for months, they were just looking through these communications. And then they call in the witnesses and say, hey, on June 8th, you said this. What? You know, people would be blindsided. So it was a very sure. effective way to go on the offensive. But there was massive pushback against it, too. That's part of the story I tell as well.
0: Yeah, you mentioned in the book that uh, we say that the committee, excuse me, the committee monitored private communications on a scale previously unrivaled in U.S. history, at least in peacetime. So this was, uh, uh, as Joe Biden would say, a, you know, a big effing deal. Um, talk a little bit about that pushback. Who um, who were the people uh, that push back on this? It's not a... It's not a uh, straight sort of partisan divide here. Um, you mentioned in the book how the civil liberties concerns during this period start to form sort of like a, a cross-ideological coalition from both the, both the left and both the right to protect civil liberties and, and the Bill of Rights.
1: Yeah. Well, what happened was various things, but Western Union started, they, they didn't like doing this, right? And they started to let people know whose communications were being monitored in this way, because a lot of them didn't even know, right? So they started to let them know. And uh, uh, one guy that found out was named Newton Baker, a Democrat, a New Dealer, not a very radical one, but a, but a supporter of the president. He'd been um, Secretary of War under Wilson. And he was so mad when he found out that he said, he's, you know, this is a mild-mannered guy. He said, I would not participate in a lynching party for Senator Hugo Black. However, if I saw someone stringing a rope over him, I would not stop them. <laughs> and uh, that's the kind of thing you got. You had New Deal figures like uh, Manuel Seller. When I was young, he was, he was a kind of Democratic old horse from New York, old war horse. And Seller... Um, you know, I think at one point compared this to the tactics of Mussolini. So you get newspapers like the sh- uh, the Washington Post uh, condemning this. You get groups like the American Civil Liberties Union. You get a lot of people on the left saying this is out of line. Um, and there, there is a successful court suit that provides a precedent that is a rare victory for someone against Congress. Congress has wide discretion. In investigation still does but the court basically said you've gone too far this is this is a, a violation of privacy under the bill of rights uh, or in fact they use the term privacy um, search and seizure and you know and so forth it's 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 going beyond the bounds of the restrictions imposed by the bill of rights and uh there is a court precedent. It doesn't go to the Supreme Court because what the committee does is Black is like stunned by it. He didn't expect this. He says, well, we're done with our, our investigation. We don't really need to do more. And the court basically says, we are not. We can't do much more than that. They're, we're finished with it. They're finished. We can't really do anything more than this. So it is a precedent, though. And it may have stopped future congressional committees from doing the same kind of thing later. Now, imagine if the McCarthy committee had had the ability to not only look at telegrams, but monitor phone calls, which is really same principle, really. Sure. They didn't have that power. So it it I think it was a break on what future investigations could do.
0: So did Black change his position at all on surveillance
1: uh, once he got onto the Supreme Court? Yes, he did. And he didn't exactly admit it, but he, he kind of did. He he got on the court and Black was, I think you could overrate his civil libertarianism, but on some issues, he became something of a civil libertarian along with um, William O. Douglas um, in the 40s, the late 40s, and the 50s. And he There was a similar congressional committee that I discussed called the Buchanan committee, which was at the same time as the McCarthy committee. And they are not looking at telegrams, but they're, they're trying to get membership lists of organizations. And basically the Supreme court says, you don't do that. And black and uh, what's his name? Uh, Douglas are especially strong in saying, this is surveillance. This is, (laughs) this is totalitarian. And so, um, they end up he ends up becoming something of a you know, someone said that he would have only contempt, you know, if he could go back in a time machine and saw the tactics of his role when he was senator, only contempt for that person and what he was doing, because he essentially rules against later congressional committees that are doing things that really aren't quite as bad you know mm-hmm. as the black committee sure so all people right. can change and this is an interesting story here that i've seen several times
0: mm-hmm. yeah all right so from one committee to the other let's shift on the black committee to the mitten committee uh so once again same sort of question who was sherman mitten uh, what was the purpose of the mitten committee and you know what did it actually do and what was
1: fdr's role and well, if you're looking for bad things about FDR's civil liberties record, it's almost <laughs> an embarrassment of riches because it's one thing's after another. Black is promoted to the Supreme Court. Why? Uh, well, FDR knew about it. it. was The rumors were out there, and FDR had a good reason to know about. I think he did know about his Klan background. Well, um, uh, But that came out officially after he was on the court, and um, he stays on the court. He's able to stay on the court. But why was he on the court? He was on the court because he'd been very effective as the head of the Black Committee. That was his reward. The guy, though, that Roosevelt had asked first to be on the Supreme Court for the seat taken by Black was Sherman Mitten, who was, who was a young, ambitious senator from Indiana. Mitten is an ally of Black, if anything, more loyal to the administration. And he becomes head of the, this committee that Black had to give up, the lobbying committee. It's called the Mitten Committee now. And they can't go at the private telegrams that they try to investigate anti New Deal organizations. And one of the things they do, they they do this early on, is they ask for membership lists, contribute. No, they ask for contribution lists. And for these organizations, and one guy just says, I'm not going along with you. And he basically says, You you throw me in jail for contempt if you want. I'm not giving our, our contribution list. And they decide. Probably better not to prosecute him because it's not going to look good. Minton, um, though, is best known for proposing a bill that would that that would have punished any news article known to be untrue or false, fake news. They this is new. This is not new. Make it a fellow Is worried about fake news, but what's encouraging about this is there is universal opposition on both the left and the right and he just has to slink away and pull his bill out or withdraw his bill and that would not happen now i don't think but it is an attempt and roosevelt agreed i think with this i don't have the total smoking gun but i think roosevelt put him up to it you think he said he used it as a trial of fake news we got to get rid of fake news yeah. yeah,
0: you you said you said in the book you think he probably used it as he was famous for doing uh, sort of uh, floating it as a trial balloon just to see what the reaction to it
1: would be. Roosevelt's different than Trump. Trump will just blurt it out. That's his weakness. He wants to do something and he'll say it. And Roosevelt will float trial balloons. He'll put people up to it. He'll pull back if the reaction is not good. Um He's very good at that kind of thing is the, Oh, somebody call, he called himself the juggler at one time. You know, you just can't see what I'm doing. I got this in one hand and this in one. Hand. he he he's he's it's an art for him to, to, to Franklin Roosevelt to manipulate things behind the scenes. He's very good at it.
0: Mm. Okay. Let's shift gears again. Uh, this section of the book I thought was very, very interesting just because I, um, Literally knew nothing about it really before going into this, and um, that was the discussion of radio and the sort of the regulation of radio by the government, and the how Roosevelt and the FCC, um, you know, for lack of a better term, <laughs> went after uh, you know, uh, rogue uh broadcasters. But um, so before we get to that, what does the regulation of the radio waves look like in its really early days and how, uh, how did it change leading up to the new deal?
1: Well, these are very good questions. I, I wanted to look at Roosevelt and radio, but then I just look, I I have to go back further and I have to look at the origins of the federal communications commission, which were under Coolidge, 1927. Mm. And what, what happened here? Right, because this is later used quite effectively by Roosevelt when it becomes the Federal Communications Commission. Same thing. And what I found was in the early 1920s, radio was arguably freer than the print press. There was no equal time law. Uh, There was no FCC. There was the Department of Commerce, and what you would do is essentially you'd you'd start broadcasting and you'd register your you know your your station, and they would assign you a a, a a wavelength, and they'd protect it from interference. And there was no, there there were very no, there were no controls to to particularly. And so there were stations that catered to uh, socialists. There were these rogue broadcasters, as you mentioned. These are these small fry. They had this agenda. Small business, sometimes big business. You had labor unions, you had churches, and you see, you had a wide variety of, I, I guess you'd call it market segmentation, and stations were coming up all over the place. And you had a fairly stable system where you had protections against interference. But Herbert Hoover, who was Secretary of Commerce, did not like this. He wanted, in effect, nationalization of the airwaves, he wanted to monitor what. Uh, stations were doing. He 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 didn't like this market segmentation. So he just sort of created chaos by basically refusing to support these rules, and it created a demand which ultimately led to the FCC. Although there's more to that story, but the FCC comes along, and what they do is they basically shut down a lot of stations. They allocate the airwaves and. Eventually, you get a situation where they've got, I think it's, I think it gets down to something like six-month renewal periods, where you're constantly having to worry about renewal, and is the FCC going to to shut them down, and people are intimidated. And uh, as a result of that, when Roosevelt comes along using radio very effectively, it is in his hip pocket. It supports the New Deal 100%, almost where print press is mostly anti-Roosevelt. So radio is his ace in the hole, and that is important because radio is becoming the main source for news by the 1930s. In early 40s, I think it becomes the main source, but it's Mm -hmm. rapidly overtaking the print press. But it is totally pro-New Deal. So it's a big contrast there.
0: Yeah, there's this fear of retaliation by the FCC for as you said, even the, the slightest, slimmest critique of either the New Deal itself or you know FDR or his administration. Like you said, you know, the they have these six month uh, leases, whatever, and there's this fear that they're just gonna, you know, <laughs> not renew it or just, you know, yank the station off the air. Yeah, um, and you can,
1: if you want to fight that, it's difficult. Let's say you're a rural station somewhere in Utah what are you going to send lawyers to Washington? I mean, that's where right. you got to go. So it's, 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 there, that's not the only kind of censorship that's going on, mm-hmm. but it's part of a web of censorship that, that again, FDR, the federal government have at their disposal. Before we get to the rest of this
2: podcast, I wanted to let you know about two fantastic live podcasts Heartland produces every week. We'd love for you to join us every Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern, noon central, live for our flagship In the Tank podcast. You can watch on the Stopping Socialism TV channel on YouTube, where you can participate in the show in the chat with other fans and also ask questions that we'll address on the air and put up on the screen. And every Friday, also at 1 p.m. Eastern and noon central time, you can go to Heartland's main YouTube channel. Just search for the Heartland Institute on YouTube for Climate Change Roundtable, Heartland's climate team of Anthony Watts, Sterling Burnett, and Linnea Lucan cover the crazy climate news of the week, debunk mainstream media myths about the so-called climate crisis, dig into energy policy, and much more. The show also often features guests that include some of the leading climate scientists and energy policy experts anywhere in the world. There is no show like it anywhere. So become regular live viewers of both of these programs if you are interested in smart, lively, fun, and interactive conversations. We hope to see you there every Thursday and Friday afternoons at 1 p.m. Eastern and noon central at the Stopping Socialism TV channel and the Heartland Institute channel on YouTube. Oh, yeah. We're also on Rumble. See you there.
0: Yeah. Uh, uh, Actually, talk a little bit about that. The the NAB, the National Association of Broadcasters, they have this uh, quote unquote voluntary code for those people listening out there and making air quotes around voluntary code. So what was the, what was the purpose of this of this code and and uh, who fought against it what were the, and what were its implications?
1: Well, a key part of this was the networks are very cooperative with the administration. They say basically anytime you want to give a speech, they're going to the president constantly and saying is this all right? Is this all right? So he's got the networks kind of under control and they're the main airtime. But there are a lot of independent stations. And there's a guy named Father Coughlin, who's kind of this right, he's this right wing, uh, uh, you know, uh, whatever you want to call him. I don't know if you call him an evangelist, but it's kind of a demagogue. And he purchases his own time and he, he gets it from all these independent stations. And there are a lot of complaints about him because there's things like, you know, um, uh, more and more ev- evidence of anti-Semitism and all this. So a lot of these stations are very paranoid about this. And they set up a, uh, the broadcasting industry says to the FCC, what do we do? And, you know, and they finally just set up this code that basically forces Coughlin off the air. One of the things they decide is, well, you can't purchase time anymore if you've got a political agenda. You can't have your own show you know to promote a political agenda because then you've got to provide equal time. And in effect you know the it's that's not the only thing. You you essentially can't buy time for that and then if you if you somehow get on the air you've got to provide equal time. So they use that quite effectively against Coughlin, but it ends up getting used against all sorts of people including labor unions. And so that's one thing that happens. So where the independent stations are often have more anti-New Deal voices, the networks know, Um, they are increasingly, uh, uh, you know, fearful and afraid of having political diversity uh, more and more so over time. Um, uh, And so this code has the effect of, it's got the endorsement of the FCC. They effect go to the Hey, say, do you approve? They approve of it. So it's a private regulation, but they're working with the FCC. And there's a lot of overlap in what the FCC is trying to do is in the NAP. And they're working together. But partly because it's just uncertainty. And the people set it up, say, we got to eliminate this uncertainty. So they create this code, this very elaborate code. And the FCC essentially says, yeah, that's great. You know, we're for it. Yeah. <laughs>
0: all right. Uh, another chapter that I thought was really, really interesting, again, because it was all, you know, pretty much completely new to me, was the the chapter on Memphis, and the Democratic oh, yeah. uh, the, the the machine boss there, a guy named Edward Crump. Um, so, and Crump was uh, <laughs> basically used his machine, uh, his Democratic machine, to Effectively, you know, just trample all over the the civil rights of of black Memphians, uh, specifically Republican uh, black Republican Memphians. And uh, so, talk a little about that, and of I guess FDR's willingness to put the New Deal regulatory and welfare uh, welfare state apparatus uh, into the service of these these big city machine bosses, like like Crump or Frank Haig in Jersey City, who you also write about uh, in the book.
1: Yeah, there are these, there are these, and some people have written about them. But um, um, you know, I think I really explore this with reference to civil liberties. FDR is a very close alliance with city Democratic bosses, and one of the closest allies is with Boss Crump. And call him Boss Crump because he is mayor for a brief time. He, but he most of the period doesn't even hold office, but he runs Memphis. He, he has the Democratic machine. And uh, Crump was an early Roosevelt guy. He supported Roosevelt in 1931 when they were talking about who to run. And so Roosevelt appreciates that. And then every election time, Crump is very reliable. If FDR needs anything, he backs him. He backs him at the convention. He certainly backs him in Memphis and makes sure that Roosevelt piles up a good vote there. Memphis had gone Republican in the nineteen twenties, um, so Crump is a key ally. As a result of this, Crump gets all kinds of federal money from the WPA, Public Works money. Constantly, he's building things funded by the New Deal, and it's. It's like, where does the Democratic Party begin and where does the federal government end? Because people that work for federal agencies are often in the Democratic Party and they're serving. And and the message is communicated to these workers, you vote Democrat or else. Very blatant. Crump is very blatant about this. Well, Crump had been willing to tolerate Black voting. So Memphis is an exception. It's uh, uh, Blacks had voted there in the 1930s and earlier in big numbers, and they voted Republican. And Crump had a deal with them. It's like, when I need you, you'll support me. And when I need patronage from Republican presidents, you'll help me get money. Good deal. Well, Roosevelt comes along and they don't need the patronage anymore because he's funneling Democratic money in there. And gradually, Crump says, I don't need these. Black voters anymore and increasingly sidelines them, but they're still voting for a while. And there's this black leader named J.B. Martin, black Republican. He's head of the Republican Party in um, Shelby County, Memphis. And he decides, I'm going to carry this state for Wilkie, the Republican in 1940, and I'm going to win Memphis. And if he had, Wilkie was very pro civil rights. It would have meant, you know, Protection, federal protection. So he organizes a couple uh, interracial rally in Memphis of over a thousand people, including um, the wife of the white Republican candidate. And they're, you know, it's looking like, yeah, maybe we could take the state. Who knows? It happened before. And then Crump is just upset because he thought, this guy, you know, I worked with him in the past. Now he's bucking me. And he sends a message through. Others to um, to Martin and Martin is is black leader. He's the head of the Negro Baseball League. He's a prominent guy. He's a uh, owns a, a leading drugstore for African Americans in the South. And Crump says, "You better stop this. No more rallies, or I'll police you." And you better shut down the Republican Party too. And uh, Martin says, "I am sorry. I just can't do that." And he goes out at the second rally. Well, then right away. The next hour or so after that, his drugstore is being policed. That means every customer is being searched. Blatant. Everybody knows about it. There's no secret. Crump said he's searching for drugs. Nobody believes it. Nobody does. He doesn't believe it. And they search everyone, including children with ice cream cones. Coming in there, priests, right? Uh, And uh, eventually becomes so difficult because of that and other pressure. Martin is forced to leave Memphis. He returns one more time to go to the stadium. He helped build a black baseball team and to watch a game, the police come up to his box and take him and tell him to get out of town. He never comes back again. He complains. Martin complains to the federal government. Uh, he has, uh, and he he complains to the Department of Justice and they are willing to prosecute. Low-level people, the civil rights investigators, and because it's blatant, it's open. Everybody knows about it, and it's not just happening to Martin. It's exiled, right? Um, but it's vetoed. Higher-ups veto it, even though it really would have been a slam dunk case because it's quite clear, Crump is an ally of both both Roosevelts, Franklin and Eleanor. And uh, the labor leader, A. Philip Randolph, comes in to help out Martin. He goes to Eleanor, who is a friend, and said, please help us. And she says, I've been told that we're not going to do anything on this. And I got the letter from her. It's very incriminating. So <laughs> nothing happens. And so R- Crump is just too powerful an ally for Roosevelt. And he's he does nothing again. He does nothing. And Crump. Remains the Democratic boss all the way during through Roosevelt's administration, and really in some ways until the 1950s when he dies.
0: Yeah, and uh, you know it's not like he needs to do much, right? I mean, he's the president of the United States. He's the head of the party. Uh, he's the most powerful man in <laughs> the country.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, all he really needs to do is not even send word. Uh, or not even speak to crump himself but just send word through a subordinate to crump to, to say hey this isn't good knock this off you know that would have been enough that would yeah that would have been plenty yeah. and uh and uh, you know no public condemnation or anything like that need have been done i mean it just i mean he could have just done a back channel and all that and uh and it would have taken care of itself but um he for whatever
1: reason uh refused to do it it is really quite amazing. And Crump is just, there's no secret, right? No no historian's going to deny anything I've said about Crump.
0: Sure. <laughs> now, yeah. I, mean, I look you- at
1: the FDR connection, which other historians have not done as much. They have viewed Crump in isolation. But it is part of this rather unsavory alliance. You've got Mayor Haig. Is another one, and I got a whole story on that, where he uses very similar tactics. Expels people. Norman Thomas, a socialist leader, is, is expelled by police from Jersey City. But these guys are just very powerful in the Democratic Party, and they're really key uh, in 1944 to to get Truman in. Mm. The, the, these bosses are the ones that go that basically engineer. Um, uh, uh, Truman becoming the vice presidential candidate and forcing out Wallace, who's, you know, very left wing.
0: Right. That actually a good thing in retrospect. Yeah, <laughs> it might have been a good thing. You know,
1: interestingly enough, years later, I'm not a big Truman fan, but, mm-hmm. you know, but uh, Wallace,
0: yeah, Henry Wallace Henry.
1: changes his mind. And he goes to Truman and meets with him somewhere in the 50s. and said, you know, you were right to fire me. Because Truman had fired him, he mm-hmm. says, "You were right to fire me." Yeah, that's you know, gotta give a guy credit for that. Who's <laughs> willing to say something like that? Yeah. That, uh,
0: speaking of Norman Thomas, that was one of the uh, another interesting thing learning in the book that uh, he and Alf Landon, who was the Republican, ran against Roosevelt in '36. Uh, how they basically became like. Best bros (laughs) over all this stuff. Yeah,
1: you got a left right coalition. Yeah. And can you imagine AOC doing that? That would be equivalent to that. Maybe Bernie, I don't know, but whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, But you have left right coalitions working together. You have new dealers like uh, the Attorney General and uh, others who are willing to oppose Roosevelt's initiative, you know, criticize him on civil liberties. And uh, that was the encouraging thing, left-right coalitions. And I would say we are not as advanced because I don't see the strength of these coalitions as much as they used to be. You have a few people, but this is very powerful. Members of Congress turned on Roosevelt. And not on just in this, and something I didn't talk about much was the Supreme Court Mm packet. That was New Dealers. Yeah. And As well as more conservative Democrats. But a lot of New Dealers said Roosevelt's going too far. It wasn't just conservative Democrats. Roosevelt, an overwhelming majority. A lot of liberals were turning on him, too, saying, enough. This is the Constitution. You just wouldn't have that happen now, unfortunately.
0: No, I don't think so. All right. Uh, now let's get to the big one. Uh, that is the internment of over 100,000 uh, Americans of Japanese ancestry and uh, uh, Japanese uh, citizens that are residents of the United States, taking these 100,000 Japanese um, people on the West Coast and essentially forcing them into they you know, they are sort of whitewashed as internment camps, but they're—I mean, you know, <laughs> the definition of what a concentration camp is—that they're concentration camps. So, um. The internment of the Japanese uh, Japanese Americans. How did that policy get rolling, and what was Roosevelt's role in that decision and the implementation of uh, of the internment policy? He's generally um, because see, this is a really big one. You think like <laughs> uh, putting a hundred thousand people, American citizens, in in camps, literally for really no other reason than their than their their race or their ancestry uh literally be, no other reason yeah yeah would would um would be something that would uh get you retroactively canceled in today's uh culture but he's he's generally escaped the uh the cancel mob. so but uh but really but what was roosevelt's role
1: in internment Okay, well, I think you you brought up the issue of call them internment camps or concentration camps. And some people have pushed back and said, don't call them that. That's like calling them like uh, comparing them to, you know, uh, Auschwitz. No, I don't compare that. I think there is a distinction to be made between death camps and concentration camps. But that's what they were. And Roosevelt called them that. He called them concentration camps publicly. Um, and I think for good reason, they had guard towers, you know, people were put there, they had barbed wire, people were put there in, in case only in the Japanese because of biological ancestry, You're born in the United States, you are put there, even orphans, Japanese orphans were put there. So I would argue that what the internment camps are is they show FDR's contempt for civil liberties. I think that they're a part of, you could see it as a puzzle. This is by far the biggest puzzle piece if you're judging FDR on civil liberties internment But it is only one puzzle piece. There are many others. And it's interconnected with the other pieces. You see that now. When I did this chapter, I, I could see instantly how it's connected with so many other things. Well, Roosevelt, what is his attitude? Roosevelt had, had always been suspicious of Japanese Americans. He wrote articles as not. As a, in the 1920s for a, a paper called the Macon Telegraph in Georgia. And he basically endorsed laws against interracial marriage for Japanese, fearful of what he called the intermingling of blood. He endorsed California's laws to ban Japanese, uh, first-generation Japanese from owning land. Um, And he supported limits, you know, the bar to Japanese immigration. So he's not a big pro-Japanese guy, right? Well, okay, you could say that's one part of it. But then in the late 30s, 36, I think, Roosevelt actually says privately that if we have a war with Japan, I want anyone who meets with Japanese ships in Honolulu, or their friends, I want them put in, quote, a concentration camp. So he's already along that mindset. Now, once Pearl Harbor happens, there is no great groundswell, and this is one thing I think I show, for Japanese internment. Nobody. I mean, there are people that maybe say that, but most people, including in Southern California, are saying they're Americans, etc. Roosevelt does not take that opportunity, although he's urged to do so, to say, cool it. These are citizens. We have the Bill of Rights, right? Which he mm-hmm. started to talk about. This is a proof that we're different. You know, don't leave them alone. That would have been just fine, sure. right? There's no great groundswell. But Roosevelt kind of leaves leeway for people to start pushing this. And it started happening gradually. Um, and in and, and, and February, he signs the order, uh, Executive Order 9066, I think. 9066, which, yep. Yeah, yeah, begins the whole process of internment, never using the term Japanese in, in these orders, his orders, uh, his executive orders. That's carried out by the military, and they use the term Japanese very much so. But he does this, um, and he has opposition. His attorney general, of all people, is against it. FDR, the FBI director, J. Edgar Hoover, is against it. His secretary of interior, big advisor, Harold Ickes, is against it. So they're all, and there are people in the military that are. So Roosevelt chooses not to listen to these people, and he pushes forward on it. He's given all sorts of advice that this is not that big a deal. We don't have to worry. Mm -hmm. They'll be fine. They're loyal. He does it anyway. And after he signs his executive order, he persists in wanting to intern Japanese-Americans in Hawaii. That is his personal project that he pushes. And he says, we need to move them all to a small island there. And the guy on the ground, the military commander, pushes back subtly, drags his feet, and, and is able to stop it. And uh, it doesn't happen. And part of it is the expense because they said, "Look, if we intern the Japanese in Hawaii, we're going to have to divert all these ships from, you know, from the Pacific back to Hawaii to move them." And they give up on it. But that's yeah, not how only that; I mean, he gonna... is to it. He wants to intern them in Hawaii. He pushes yeah. that long time. Right. You're gonna have to
0: basically inter, <laughs> you know, a tenth of the, the population of Hawaii at that time, or maybe even more. So. Oh, it's
1: like forty percent. Is it forty percent? Oh Hawaii? yeah, yeah. You <laughs> imagine that? Yeah, that's a good one.
0: No, but I I think you make a point. Um, again, going back to to Memphis, you know, just you know, this internment would not have happened if Roosevelt did not want it to happen. If Roosevelt he didn't, didn't think internment was a good idea. Thought it was unconstitutional. Thought it was a horrible, uh, you know, abrogation of the the rights of American citizens. It just never would have happened. And it's a uh, it's a sort of contrast Roosevelt um, during that period with uh, George Bush after uh, the 9-11 attacks in uh, in two thousand one, where Bush really sort of went out of his way to uh, sort of put a tamp down on uh, any potential Islamophobic uh, rhetoric or uh, actions or things like that. I mean, he went out of his way to say Islam did not attack us on 9-11, you know, religion of peace, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera all that, just to sort of try to cool tensions in what was a very uh, hot period. And uh, Roosevelt did nothing of the like, uh, as far as I know, uh, after, uh, after the Pearl Harbor attack in 1941, and, uh, <laughs> you know, and that led to him to endorsing and enforcing the internment of American citizens for, for racial regions, uh, reasons. Um, But another thing too, uh, not just Roosevelt, what was the, what was the role of the new deal bureaucracy in enforcing uh, the internment of the Japanese Americans?
1: Yeah, I've gotten pushback on this, even though most historians who've really studied it agree with what I'm going to say. Um, people said, oh, that's, you know, don't smear the New Deal. You're talking about the New Deal's war and the Bill of Rights. Come on, Beto. This is World War II. This is different, right? As used, people used to say, Roosevelt said, in fact, I was Dr. New Deal. Now I'm Dr. Win the War, right? The people believe that. Well, guess what? Uh, the If you want to think of any agency during the New Deal that is a signature New Deal agency, probably... You know, if you're, you know, you say Social Security, I suppose, but the Works Progress Administration, the WPA projects, they would be way up there. Well, the WPA is still around in 1942, and they are spending more than the military in 1942 up to, I think, November on building concentration camps for Japanese Americans and on transporting them to these camps. They're spending more than the army. We associate with the army, they actually spend more than the army. And a lot of the things we associate with the camps, such as guard towers, spotlights, barbed wire, are the product of the WPA, the people that use their talents in road building and that kind of thing. A lot of the early camps, like Manzanar, are administered by WPA officials. Um, uh, 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 Harry Hopkins, who's the head of the WPA, very key guy. He's all for this. He writes his successor is now the head of the WPA, but he praises him. He said, that guy did a great job building these camps for the Japanese Americans. Um, And so they are a key agency and it is the biggest I think you could make an argument. I haven't really studied this, but i if you people talk about WPA uh, uh, projects, I think it's the biggest single WPA project of all time. Oh, wow. And that's what it's doing during this period. Now, the WPA is wound down in 43, partly because it just has a bad reputation. Uh, people have said, we piddle along, the Republicans have made gains in Congress, and it's just seen as a kind of... Um, uh, wasteful bureaucracy, but it is wound down after interment. But all the the main WPA officials are folded into the bureaucracy of the War Relocation Agency, which administers the camps. And some of the camps, as it said, are like almost one hundred percent former WPA. They are the backbone of the camps, so that continues on. Um, but that. You know, I think there you could see the interconnections right there. I don't think you need to do more than that to show that. Now, I could look at other things. Boss Crump is able, part of the way he's able to control free speech in Memphis is through uh, things like uh, public housing. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 black leader, labor leader comes to Memphis and he wants to speak at one of the public housing projects. It's a black public house, you know, housing. And uh, the local bureaucracy says no. Um, you you've invited him, but he can't come, right? So you see this, and you could give the examples about how the New Deal bureaucracy is used in the service of the war warfare state, if you want to call it that, mm-hmm. uh, during the war. But Japanese internment is probably the leading example of that. And again, what I'm saying is not controversial. uh historians have studied this and i you know and and there's all there's some very solid work on this nobody's challenged it
0: yeah well um we're already close to an hour there's a few things we didn't get to but just a couple more questions if i I can um where was the aclu on you know all of these issues where they were they doing their <laughs> were they doing their job were they you know their intended their intended job to be a you know a watchdog for civil liberties uh, during this period? What, what was the ACLU up to during the
1: the, <laughs> the most charitable description to be mixed? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Now part of the issue with the ACLU during the New Deal and World War II, it's revolving door. A lot of people in the New Deal bureaucracy, including the attorney general, I think two attorney generals, had been ACLU members, still were, I guess. And so there was a friendly relationship that became increasingly close between the ACLU and the New Deal bureaucracy. So a lot of these guys are going to these Washington parties and all this and you know the ACLU officials and they like Roosevelt and they're willing to defend him and, and see the best. And so when internment comes, the ACLU dawdles around for a long time. I don't; They don't get a letter out, I think, for two months. It's a long period before they even do a kind of a protest letter. And it's a mild protest letter. And there are people in the ACLU like Norman Thomas, for example. Thurgood Marshall is very strong in civil liberties. Somebody should write about that. Very good on civil liberties, defending right wing, white ringers, Japanese Americans, etc., there are elements in the ACLU that are really want to condemn the president, but they lose. And so they take kind of this weird middle ground where they refuse to condemn the executive order. They say, well, we're not going to challenge that. Uh, they challenge various aspects of enforcement. But it's convoluted. Um, it's It's weak. Uh, and it's not what one could have hoped. And they do the same thing when there's sedition trials. We're talking about sedition trials. That's one thing we could mention. Mm -hmm. All this, everything old is new again, right? And that would include sedition trials. And the same kind of problems with them. There are sedition trials of left-wingers and right-wingers during the war. The ACLU is kind of missing in action on a lot of this stuff. Um, There are pro-civil liberty people in it, It's not entirely bad, but they tend to be sidelined by the majority in the organization, unfortunately. But it's an interesting story. And you can find some great heroes here, too, like Norman Thomas, who's just like relentless in defending civil liberties, amazing Mm -hmm. in defending civil liberties. And here's a man who's a social leading socialist of his time. And he works with conservatives like Alfred Landon and others and Herbert Hoover in cooperation to defend civil liberties for everybody,
0: right. he's a socialist, but not a communist.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's anti-communist. Right. Yeah, yeah. And and I was amazed by this because I did some work on the socialist socialists in World War II years ago. I interviewed these these were most anti-communist people you'd ever want to meet, but sure. they were real socialists too. You know? mm.
0: Yes. Uh, speaking of World War Two, uh, World War Two has this reputation of being. Uh, Pretty good war, all things considered for free speech and civil liberties. You know, like we didn't go, you know, uh, you know, we didn't uh, we didn't go to haywire during World War Two. Like, you know, we didn't <laughs> sort of there were the excesses that we saw during the Great War with the uh, Wilson administration. And uh, overall, all things considered World War II pretty good on civil liberties um, that the argument goes. Uh, is that true?
1: Well, it's not true. And of course, the big exception is the Japanese internment. I mean, several fold more people are are interned than are arrested for sedition in World War so. Sort of. But yeah, then, let's yeah. leave that but, aside. But, but the, yeah, yeah, let's people, leave that aside the... though. And let's just leave forget that. And if you look at one of the things you got to remember about World War II is, is there's no opposition anymore. Very little. After Pearl Harbor, a lot of these guys that were the most right-wing people out there. Would oppose Roosevelt's foreign policy. They they're like endorsing Pearl Harbor. I gave the example earlier of the these publishers. Um, they're endorsing the war effort, right mm-hmm. after Pearl Harbor. I right. didn't say. they're they're saying we're behind the president. And I could give you all sorts of examples. So opposition disappears. So then that leaves the question: World War One. You had still. A lot of people still opposed it after the declaration. And that, those are the people that mainly get in trouble. So what do you do now? Well, what a lot of people say is, well, we can't prosecute them. They're supporting the war. They're not making trouble. But Roosevelt wants to go after pre-war opponents who had opposed him before the war, like the Pattersons, but are now supporting the war. He wants to go after them because he sees them as subversive, as holding back intervention. And all that. So he wants to go after him, but he gets pushback from his attorney general and others, not always successful, that hold him off somewhat. So there aren't as many sedition prosecutions or espionage act prosecutions, but that's mainly because there aren't as many people to prosecute by the same right. standards used in World War One. Right. But they do prosecute people who... Violate those standards. One is a pacifist anti-war publication in Boise, Idaho, which is anti-Japanese internment and anti-racist. And it's not a revolutionary publication. It's a, like a, a, a town newspaper in Middleton, uh, Idaho, Boise Valley Herald. And they are they, uh, they lose their mailing rights. Another one is the Socialist Workers' Party, which is a Marxist party And they sort of condemn all capitalist wars. And they don't really do anything specifically against World War II, but they say it's a capitalist war, we're against it. So they're prosecuted merely for saying they're against capitalist wars. Not They don't do anything like obstruct recruiting or anything like that. So if you violate the same rules as in World War I, you are prosecuted. The issue is far fewer people are violating those rules. So that's what the difference is. And also, Roosevelt wants to go further. He wants to go after pre-war non-interventionists, but he gets pushed back from his attorney general, from the courts, and he can't do much. But he does do some things, and there's a big show trial, a sedition trial during the war that's a disaster. But it's of small fry. They were brought to Washington, like 30 of them, And prosecuted for promoting uh, insubordination in the military. And it's laughable because most Mm of these people don't even know each other, but they are accused of being part of a worldwide Nazi conspiracy. It's a travesty. And it falls apart when the judge dies because he can't take (laughs) it anymore, probably. And they just decide to drop the whole thing. The Washington Post compares it to the Moscow purge trials, Mm. it's a disaster but it's a small fry for the most part. Sure. Roosevelt wants to go after these big metropolitan publishers, but there's pushback. Because people say, "Look, they're supporting the war. They, you know, what are we going to get them on?" because they were against Lend-Lease in 19 early 41. Well, you know, not good enough, Mr. President. <laughs> and that's one encouraging message that you get. This is different in that Roosevelt gets uh, he gets people pushing back. In the federal government, in fact, I think there's some evidence that the federal government, the lower levels of the Department of Justice, were better on civil liberties than the ACLU during <laughs> World War II. Yeah. You know, well, they didn't want to go along with these things like the internment in the Sedition Trials.
0: Mm-hmm. All right, so like uh, again, we've gone a bit long. So, final question, sort of a multi-part one. Uh, part of it's something I ask everybody that comes on here, but. Um, so, what, in your opinion, is FTR's true legacy on civil liberties, and uh, beyond that, uh, what would you like the audience to get out of this book, or you know, what's the what's what's the one thing you'd want a reader uh, taking away from it, having read it?
1: Well, his legacy of civil liberties is he is relentless, um, and he is got this view that you know. The, the end matters and the means don't matter as much. But there's a, there's another side to it because we don't think that necessarily because Roosevelt does start making a lot of talk around the late 30s, early 40s uh, because it sells, because Americans become very civil liberties conscious. So he talks a lot about the Bill of Rights and he, he, he has Bill of Rights Day and he does these things. So there's a double sided nature to that. But as far as observing it, it's not really there. So we get a lot of the bad things happening now. I think bad, like revival of sedition trials, of domestic terrorism trials, of environmentalists on the left, where we're accusing people of these open-ended charges. We're seeing this happen again. And that is a very unfortunate legacy of the Roosevelt administration. But there's a more positive legacy in that we see a lot of people on the left a lot of uh, civil libertarians on the left and the right working together. So what do I want people to get out of this book? I think learn from these early pioneers for civil liberties and um, try to be like them more. If if they were, we were, if our people today were more like them, a lot, a lot of stuff would be stopped. But right now people say, Oh, that's conservatives. I don't care about them or that's environmentalists in atlanta being prosecuted under open-ended domestic terrorism charges ah they did bad things i'm not going to worry about them we need to learn to to rise above that and i think we see people who do and that's that's the legacy the positive legacy i guess
0: amen all right uh before we go is there anything else uh you want to plug while we're on here any uh any
3: Uh, No, the only thing I would
1: say is I do have a book coming out next year, people keep an eye out, and it's on Rose Wilder Lane, whose mother uh, did the Little House in the Prairie books, Mm -hmm. and she wrote for a black newspaper during World War II, wrote op-eds for one of the leading black newspapers, and uh, we republished, we're going to republish all of her articles. Very interesting, selling laissez-faire to African Americans. (laughs) So. Great, that's fantastic. And using that term, by the way. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, that's awesome. All right. Well, uh, the book once again is the New Deal's War on the Bill of Rights: The Untold Story of FDR's Concentration Camps, Censorship, and Mass Surveillance. Really, really uh, interesting, um, interesting book. I, I mean, there was a ton of information in here that uh, was um, that either entirely new to me or uh, only vaguely familiar to me and uh really just fantastic look at uh, at this period and fdr's record on civil liberties and things like that so highly highly recommend it to uh, everybody out there uh once again the book is the new deal's war and the bill of rights and the author uh dr david bido and dr bido thank you so so much for coming on the podcast really appreciate it thanks you for uh thank you for staying on a couple minutes late with me and uh and uh Lastly, thank you for uh, taking the time out to uh, write the book. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, it was fun. I, I, it was a, a laborious process to write this. It took 15 years. But when it came together, it's sort of fun to talk about. And um, um, it's a grim story in a lot of ways. But there's a lot of new stuff there. So I think people will, even if you don't agree with me, will, will learn some new things like I did when I was doing the research.
0: Yeah, absolutely. All right. So yeah, again, thank you very much for coming on and uh, for you guys out there. We will see you later. If, again, if you like this podcast, please consider leaving us a five-star review and sharing with your friends. And if you have books you'd like to discuss with us on this podcast, uh, feel free to reach out to me at uh, benson and That's T-B-E-N-S-O-N at heartland.org. And for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to heartland.org. And we do have our uh, Twitter account for the... For the uh, for the podcast itself uh you can also reach out to us there if you have any uh, questions comments or uh, more information anything like that you can reach out to us there at well it's not even twitter anymore right it's x so uh, <laughs> we have an x account or formerly known as twitter so at uh, illbooks books i i l l books on x slash twitter so check that out so uh thank you much for very much for listening everyone we'll see you guys next time take care love you robbie love you mom bye bye
3: On your shoulder, the scotch tasted much older than before. Nightly occurrence, the men laughed it off like it was a bore to them. They were right. Feminine encounters were outside. F the no